This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book Two The Education of a Personage. Chapter One The Debutante. Part One. The time is February. The place is a large, dainty bedroom in Connor's house on 68th Street, New York. A girl's room, pink walls and curtains, and a pink bedspread on a cream-colored bed. Pink and cream are the motifs of the room, but only article of furniture in full view is a luxurious dressing-table with a glass top and a three-sided mirror. On the walls there is an expensive print of Cherry Ripe, a few polite dogs by Lancier, and The King of the Black Isles by Maxfield Parish. Great disorder consisting of the following items. 1. Seven or eight empty cardboard boxes with tissue paper tongues hanging painting from their mouth. 2. An assortment of street dresses mingled with their sisters of the evening, all upon the table, all evidently new. 3. A roll of tulle, which has lost its dignity and wounded itself torturedly around everything inside. And 4. Upon the two small chairs, a collection of lingerie that beggars description. One would enjoy seeing the bill called forth by the finery displayed, and one is possessed by a desire to see the princess, for whose benefit... Look! There's someone. Disappointment. This is only a maid hunting for something. She lifts a hip from a chair. Not there. Another hip. The dressing table. Chiffonier drawers. She brings to light several beautiful chemises and an amazing pyjama, but this does not satisfy her. She goes out. An indistinguishable mumble from the next room. Now, we are getting warm. This is Alex's mother, Mrs. Conedge, ample, dignified, rouged to the dowager point and quite worn out. Her lips move significantly as she looks for it. Her search is less thorough than the maid's, but there is a touch of fury in it that quite makes up for its sketchiness. She stumbles on the tulle and her dam is quite audible. She retires, empty-handed. More chair outside, and the girl's voice, a very spoiled voice, says, Of all stupid people! After a pause, a third thicker enters. Not she of the spoiled voice, but the younger edition. This is Cecilia Conage, sixteen, pretty, shrewd, and constitutionally good-humoured. She is dressed for the evening, in a gown the obvious simplicity of which probably bores her. She goes to the nearest pile, selects a small pink garment, and holds it up appraisingly. Cecilia. Pink? Rosalind. Yes. Very snappy? Yes. I've got it. She sees herself in the mirror of the dressing table, and commences to shimmy enthusiastically. What are you doing, trying it on? From the other door enters Alec Conage. He looks around quickly and in a huge voice shouts, Mama! There is a choice of protects from next door and encouraged he starts towards it, but is repelled by another chorus. Alec. So that's where you all are. Amory Blaine is here. Take him downstairs. Oh, he is downstairs. Mrs. Conage. Well, you can show him where his room is. Tell him I'm sorry that I can't meet him now. He's heard a lot about you all. I wish you'd hurry. Father's telling him all about the war and he's restless. He's sort of temperamental. 
this last suffices to draw Cecilia into the room. Sitting herself high up and under How do you mean, temperamental? You used to say that about him in letters. Oh, he writes stuff. Does he play the piano? Don't think so. Drink? Yes, nothing queer about him. Money? Good Lord, ask him. He used to have a lot, and he's got some income now. Mrs. Conads appears. Alec, of course we're glad to have any friend of yours. You certainly ought to meet Amory. Of course I want to. But I think it's so childish of you to leave a perfectly good home to go and live with two other boys in some impossible apartment. I hope it isn't in order that you can all drink as much as you want. He'll be a little neglected tonight. This is Rosalind's week, you see. When a girl comes out, she needs all the attention. Well, then prove it by coming here and hooking me. Mrs. Cornatch goes. Rosalind hasn't changed a bit. She's awfully spoiled. She'll meet her match tonight. Who? Mr. Amory Blaine? Alec nods. Well, Rosalind has still to meet the man she can't outdistance. Honestly, Alec, she treats men terribly. She abuses them and cuts them and breaks dates with them and yawns in their faces. And they come back for more. They love it. They hate it. She's a, she's a sort of vampire, I think. And she can make girls do what she wants, usually. Only she hates girls. Personality runs in our family. I guess it ran out before it got to me. Does Rosalind behave herself? Not particularly well. Oh, she's average. Smokes sometimes, drinks punch, frequently kissed. Oh, yes, common knowledge. One of the effects of the war, you know. Immerses Mrs. Conedge. Rosalind's almost finished, so I can go down and meet your friend. Alec and his mother go out. Oh, mother. Mother's gone down. And now Rosalind enters. Rosalind is utterly Rosalind. She is one of those girls who need never make the slightest effort to have men fall in love with them. To types a men seldom do. Dull men are usually afraid of her cleverness, and intellectual men are usually afraid of her beauty. All others are hers by natural prerogative. If Rosalind could be spoiled, the process would have been complete by this time, and as a matter of fact, her disposition is not all it should be. She wants what she wants when she wants it, and she is prone to make everyone around her pretty miserable when she doesn't get it. But in the true sense she is not spoiled. Her fresh enthusiasm, her will to grow and learn, her endless faith in the inexhaustibility of romance, her courage and fundamental honesty, these things are not spoiled. There are long periods when she cordially loads her whole family. She is quite unprincipled. Her philosophy is carpe diem for herself and laissez-faire for others. She loves shocking stories. She has that coarse streak that usually goes with natures that are both fine and big. She wants people to like her, but if they do not, it never worries her or changes her. She is by no means a model character. The education of all beautiful women is knowledge of men. Rosalind had been disappointed in men after men as individuals, but she had great faith in men as a sex. Women she detested. They represented qualities that she felt and despised in herself. Incipient meanness, conceit, cowardice, and petty dishonesty. 
She once told a roomful of her mother's friends that the only excuse for women was necessity for a disturbing element among men. She danced exceptionally well, drew cleverly but hastily, and had a startling facility with words, which used only in love letters. But all criticism of Rosalind ends in her beauty. There was that shade of glorious yellow hair, the desire to imitate which supports dye industry. There was the eternal kissable mouth, small, slightly sensual, and utterly disturbing. There were grey eyes and an unpitiable skin with two spots of vanishing colour. She was slender and athletic, without underdevelopment, and it was a delight to watch her move about the room, walk along the street, swing a golf club, or turn a cartwheel. A less qualification. Her vivid, instant personality escaped that conscious, theatrical quality that Emery had found in Isabel. Monsieur Darcy would have been quite happy in number three whether to call her personality or personage. She was perhaps a delicious, unexpressible, once-in-a-century blend. On night of her debut she is, for all her strange, stray wisdom, quite like a happy little girl. Her mother's maid has just done her hair, but she has decided impatiently that she can do a better job herself. She is too nervous just now to stay in one place. To what we were, were present in this little room. She is going to speak. Isabel's alto tones had been like a violin, but if you could hear Rosalind, you would say her voice was musical as a waterfall. Honestly, there are only two costumes in the world that I really enjoy being in. One's a hoop skirt with pantaloons, the other's a one-piece bathing suit. I'm quite charming in both of them. Glad you're coming out? Yes. Aren't you? You're glad so you can get married and live on Long Island with the fast younger married set. You want life to be a chain of flirtation with a man for every link. Want it to be one? You mean I've found it one. Ha! Cecilia, darling, you don't know what a trial it is to be like me. I've got to keep my face like steel in the streets to keep men from winking at me. If I laugh hard from a front row in the theatre, the comedian plays to me for the rest of the evening. If I drop my voice, my eyes, my handkerchief at a dance, my partner calls me up on the phone every day for a week. It must be an awful strain. The unfortunate part is that the only men who interest me at all are the totally ineligible ones. Now, if I were poor, I'd go on the stage. Yes, you might as well get paid for the amount of acting you do. Sometimes, when I've felt particularly radiant, I've thought, why should this be wasted on one man? Often, when you're particularly sulky, I've wondered why it should all be wasted on just one family. I think I'll go down and meet Mr. Amory Blaine. I like temperamental men. There aren't any. Men don't know how to be really angry or really happy, and the ones that do go to pieces. Well, I'm glad I don't have all your worries. I'm engaged. Engaged? Why, you little lunatic, if Mother heard you talking like that, she'd send you off to boarding school where you belong. You won't tell her, though, because I know things I could tell, and you're too selfish. Run along, little girl. Who are you engaged to? The Iceman? The man that keeps the candy store? Cheap wit. Goodbye, darling. I'll see you later. Oh, be sure and do that. You're such help. Exit Cecilia. Rosalind finishes her hair and rises, humming. She goes up to the mirror and starts to dance in front of it on the soft carpet. She watches not her feet, but her eyes, never casually but always intently, 
even when she smiles. The door suddenly opens and then slams behind Amory, very cool and handsome as usual. He melts into instant confusion. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought... Oh, you're Amory Blaine, aren't you? And you're Rosalind? I'm going to call you Amory. Oh, come in. It's all right. Mother will be right in, unfortunately. This is sort of a new wrinkle for me. This is no man's land. This is where you... you... Yes, all those things. See, here's my rouge, eye pencils. I didn't know you were that way. What did you expect? I thought you'd be sort of... sort of sexless, you know, swim and play golf. Oh, I do, but not in business hours. Business? Six to two, strictly. I'd like to have some stock in the corporation. Oh, it's not a corporation. It's just Rosalind Unlimited. Fifty-one shares, name, goodwill, and everything goes at $25,000 a year. Sort of a chilly proposition. Well, Amory, you don't mind, do you? When I meet a man that doesn't bore me to death after two weeks, perhaps it'll be different. Odd. You have the same point of view on men that I have on women. I'm not really feminine, you know, in my mind. Go on. No, you. You go on. You've made me talk about myself. That's against the rules. Rules? My own rules. But you... Oh, Amory, I hear you're brilliant. The family expects so much of you. How encouraging. Alex said you taught him to think. Did you? I didn't believe anyone could. No, I'm really quite dull. He evidently doesn't intend this to be taken seriously. Liar. I'm... I'm religious. I'm literary. I, I've even written poems. Vers libre. Splendid. The trees are green. The birds are singing in the trees. The girl sips her poison. The bird flies away. The girl dies. No, not that kind. I like you. Don't. Modest, too. I'm afraid of you. I'm always afraid of a girl. Until I've kissed her. My dear boy, the war is over. So I'll always be afraid of you. I suppose you will. A slight hesitation on both their parts. Listen, this is a frightful thing to ask. After five minutes. But will you kiss me? Or are you afraid? I'm never afraid, but your reasons are so poor. Rosalind, I really want to kiss you. So do I. They kiss. Definitely and thoroughly. Well, is your curiosity satisfied? Is yours? No, it's only aroused. I've kissed dozens of men. I suppose I'll kiss dozens more. Yes, I suppose you could. Like that. Most people like the way I kiss. Good Lord, yes. Kiss me once more, Rosalind. No, my curiosity is generally satisfied at one. Is that a rule? I make rules to fit the cases. You and I are somewhat alike, except that I'm years older in experience. How old are you? Almost twenty-three. You? Nineteen, just. I suppose you're the product of a fashionable school. No, I'm fairly raw material. I was expelled from Spence. I've forgotten why. 
What's your general trend? Oh, I'm bright, quite selfish, emotional when aroused, fond of admiration. I don't want to fall in love with you. Nobody asked you to. But I probably will. I love your mouth. Hush, please don't fall in love with my mouth. Hair, eyes, shoulders, slippers, but not my mouth. Everybody falls in love with my mouth. It's quite beautiful. It's too small. No, it isn't. Let's see. He kisses her again with the same thoroughness. Say something sweet. Lord, help me. Well, don't if it's so hard. Shall we pretend? So soon? We haven't the same standards of time as other people. Already it's other people. Let's pretend. No, I, I can't. It's sentiment. You're not sentimental? No, I'm romantic. A sentimental person thinks things will last. A romantic hopes against hope that they won't. Sentiment is emotional. And you're not. You probably flatter yourself that that's a superior attitude. Well, Rosalind, Rosalind, don't argue. Kiss me again. No, I have no desire to kiss you. You wanted to kiss me a minute ago. This is now. I'd better go. I suppose so. He goes towards the door. Oh! <laughs> Score, home team, 100, opponents, zero. He starts back. Rain, no game. He goes out. She goes quietly to the chiffonier, takes out a cigarette case and hides it in the side drawer of a desk. Her mother enters, notebook in hand. Good, I've been wanting to speak to you alone before we go downstairs. Heavens, you frighten me. Rosalind, you've been a very expensive proposition. Yes. And you know your father hasn't what he once had. Oh, please don't talk about money. You can't do anything without it. This is our last year in this house, and unless things change, Cecilia won't have the advantages you've had. Well, what is it? So I ask you to please mind me in several things I've put down in my notebook. The first one is don't disappear with young men. There may be a time when it's valuable, but at present I want you on the dance floor where I can find you. There are certain men I want to have you meet, and I don't like finding you in some corner of the conservatory exchanging silliness with anyone, or listening to it. Yes, listening to it is better. And don't waste a lot of time with the college set, little boys nineteen and twenty years old. I don't mind a prom or a football game, but staying away from advantageous parties to eat in little cafes downtown with Tom, Dick, and Harry. Mother, it's done. You can't run everything now the way you did in the early nineties. There are several bachelor friends of your father's that I want you to meet tonight. Youngish men. About forty-five. Why not? Oh, quite all right. They know life and are so adorably tired-looking. But they will dance. I haven't met Mr. Blaine, but I don't think you'll care for him. He doesn't sound like a money-maker. Mother, I never think about money. You never keep it long enough to think about it. <sighs> yes, I suppose one day I'll marry a ton of it. Out of sheer boredom. I had a wire from Hartford. Dawson Ryder's coming up. Now there's a young man I like, and he's floating in money. It seems to me that since you seem tired of Howard Gillespie, you might give Mr. Ryder some encouragement. This is the third time he's been up in a month. How did you know I was tired of Howard Gillespie? 
the poor boy looks so miserable every time he comes. That was one of those romantic pre-battle affairs. They're all wrong. At any rate, make us proud of you tonight. Don't you think I'm beautiful? You know you are. From downstairs is heard the moan of a violin being tuned, droll of a drum. Mrs. Connors turns quickly to her daughter. Come. One minute. Her mother leaves. Rosalind goes to the class where she gazes at herself with great satisfaction. She kisses her hand and touches his mirrored mouth with it. Then she turns out the lights and leaves the room. Silence for a moment. A few chores from the piano. The discreet patter of faint drums, the rustle of new silk, all bend on the staircase outside and drift in through the partly open door. Bundled figures pass in the lighted hall. The laughter heard below becomes doubled and multiplied. Then someone comes in, closes the door, and switches on the light. It is Cecilia. She goes to the chiffonier, looks into drawers, hesitates. Then to the desk when she takes the cigarette case and extracts one. She lights it and then, puffing and blowing, walks toward the mirror. Oh, yes, coming out is such a farce nowadays, you know. One really plays around so much before one is seventeen that it's positively anticlimax. Yes, your grace, I believe I heard my sister speak of you. Have a puff, they're very good. They're, they're coronas. You don't smoke? Oh, what a pity. The king doesn't allow it, I suppose. Yes, I'll dance. So she dances around the room to a tune from downstairs, her arms outstretched to an imaginary partner, cigarette waving in her hand. Several hours later. The corner of a den downstairs, filled by a very comfortable leather lounge. A small light is on each side above, and in the middle, over the couch, hangs a painting of a very old, very dignified gentleman, period 1860. Outside, music is heard in a foxtrot. Rosalind is seated on the lounge, and on her left is Howard Gillespie, a vapid youth of about twenty-four. He is obviously very unhappy, and she is quite bored. Gillespie What do you mean I've changed? I feel the same toward you. But you don't look the same to me. Three weeks ago... You used to say that you liked me because I was so blasé, so indifferent. I still am. But not about me. I used to like you because you had brown eyes and thin legs. Uh, they're still thin and brown. You're a vampire, that's all. The only thing I know about vamping is what's on the piano score. What confuses men is that I'm perfectly natural. I used to think you were never jealous. Now you follow me with your eyes wherever I go. I love you. I know it. And you haven't kissed me for two weeks. I have an idea that after a girl was kissed, she was... was... one. Those days are over. I have to be one all over again every time you see me. Are you serious? About as usual. There used to be two kinds of kisses. First, when girls were kissed and deserted. Second, when they were engaged. Now there's a third kind, where the man is kissed and deserted. If Mr. Jones of the nineties bragged he'd kissed a girl, everyone knew he was through with her. If Mr. Jones of 1919 brags the same, everyone knows it's because he can't kiss her any more. 
Given a decent start, any girl can beat a man nowadays. Then why do you play with men? For that first moment when he's interested. There is a moment, oh, just before the first kiss, a whispered word, something that makes it worthwhile. And then? Then after that you make him talk about himself. Pretty soon he thinks of nothing but being alone with you. He sulks, he won't fight, he doesn't want to play. Victory! Enter Dawson Ryder, twenty-six, handsome, wealthy, faithful to his own, a poor perhaps, but steady and sure of success. Ryder I believe this is my dance, Rosalind. Well, Dawson, so you recognize me. Now I know I haven't got too much paint on. Mr. Ryder, this is Mr. Gillespie. They shake hands and Gillespie leaves, tremendously downcast. Your party is certainly a success. Is it? I haven't seen it lately. I'm weary. Do you mind sitting out a minute? Mind? I'm delighted. You know I loathe this rushing idea. See a girl yesterday, today, tomorrow. Dawson. What? I wonder if you know you love me. What? Oh, you know you're remarkable. Because you know I'm an awful proposition. Anyone who marries me will have his hands full. I mean mighty mean. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Oh, yes, I am. Especially to the people nearest to me. Come, let's go. I've changed my mind, and I want to dance. Mother's probably having a fit. Excellent. Enter Alec and Cecilia. Just my luck to get my own brother for an intermission. I'll go if you want me to. Good heavens, no. With whom would I begin the next dance? <sighs> There's no color in a dance since the French officers went back. I don't want Amory to fall in love with Roslyn. Why, I had an idea that was just what you did want. I did, but since seeing these girls, I don't know. I'm awfully attached to Amory. He's sensitive, and I don't want him to break his heart over somebody who doesn't care about him. He's very good-looking. She won't marry him, but a girl doesn't have to marry a man to break his heart. What does it? I wish I knew the secret. Why, you cold-blooded little kitty. It's lucky for some that the Lord gave you a pug nose. Enter Mrs. Conedge. Where on earth is Rosalind? Of course, you've come to the best people to find out. She'd naturally be with us. Her father has marshaled eight bachelor millionaires to meet her. You might form a squad and march through the halls. I'm perfectly serious. For all I know, she may be at the Coconut Grove with some football player on the night of her debut. You look left and I'll... Hadn't you better send the butler through the cellar? Oh, you don't think she'd be there. He's only joking, Mother. Mother had a picture of her tapping a keg of beer with some high hurdler. Let's look right away. They go out. Rosalie comes in with Gillespie. Rosalind, once more I ask you, don't you care a blessed thing about me? Amy walks in briskly. My dance. Mr. Gillespie, this is Mr. Blaine. Uh, I've met Mr. Blaine. From Lake Geneva, aren't you? Yes. I've been there. It's in the... the Middle West, isn't it? Approximately. But I've always felt I'd rather be provincial hot tamale than soup without seasoning. 
What? Oh, no offense. Gillespie bows and leaves. He's too much people. I was in love with a people once. So? Oh, yes. Her name was Isabel. Nothing at all to her except what I read into her. What happened? Finally, I convinced her that she was smarter than I was. Then she threw me over. Said I was critical and impractical, you know. What do you mean impractical? Oh, drive a car but can't change a tire. What are you going to do? Can't say. Run for president? Right. Greenwich Village? Good heavens, no. I said right, not drink. I like businessmen. Clever men are usually so homely. I feel as if I'd known you for ages. Oh, are you going to commence the pyramid story? No. I was going to make it French. I was Louis the Sixteenth, and you were one of my... my... Suppose we fell in love. I've suggested pretending. If we did, it would be very big. Why? Because selfish people are, in a way, capable of great loves. Pretend. Very deliberately, they kiss. I can't say sweet things, but you are beautiful. Not that. What then? Oh, nothing. Only I want sentiment, real sentiment, and I never find it. I never find anything else in the world, and I loathe it. It's so hard to find a male to gratify one's artistic taste. Someone has opened the door, and the music of a waltz surges into the room. Rosalind rises. Listen, they're playing Kiss Me Again. He looks at her. Well? Well? I love you. I love you now. They kiss. Oh, God, what have I done? Nothing. Oh, don't talk. Kiss me again. I don't know why or how, but I love you. From the moment I saw you. Me too. I, I, oh, tonight's tonight. Her brother strolls in, starts, and then in a loud voice says, Oh, excuse me, and goes. Say it. I love you now. Oh, I am very youthful, thank God, and rather beautiful, thank God, and happy, thank God, thank God. Poor Amory. He kisses her again. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Part One. Narration read by Anna Samar. Cecilia read by Rosalind Wills. Rosalind read by Claire Gauget. Mrs. Connage, read by Kirsten Ferrari. Alec, read by Jason Oakley. Amory, read by James Rye. Howard Gillespie, read by Andrew Lebrun. Dawson Ryder, read by Jason Oakley.